sermons that I wanted to preach when, I, when, when Pastor Ryan was asking us for things to say that I withheld. So, you may get a few of them now, but bring it, bring it, brother. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to say was that that it, uh, speaking of like multi generational believers, we we often don't think of the things that we do each each day and and the mundane as basically being the um, warfare essentially where where we're. Well, the way Paul puts it is that we're bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that, that metaphor is a, is a war metaphor, right? You're capturing things and you're bringing them into subjection. And that's really, I mean, the, the metaphor sounds kind of brutal and all, but that's what, that's what this life is about, essentially, is, is bringing everything into submission to the obedience of Christ. And uh, we're going to see that, that actually... What we're going to look at in Romans 4 today is going to take us all the way back to Abraham, of course, which is where we've, we've been, um, but then also back to Adam, because what, what the way that Paul is going to make a statement about the inheritance of Abraham, and you would think, and we'll see it in just a moment, you would think that this inheritance is going to be like the land of Israel, which is what people think of, right? That's what people think. Well, Abraham was promised the land. And, and so this land was the land of Israel. And they're still waiting on that to be fulfilled. And I say hogwash, right? This is hogwash because what has happened in the Messiah is actually that the whole world has come under his dominion. And you and I and, and all of us who believe in the Messiah are called to bring it, bring it captive, right, to the obedience of Christ. That's what's going on in the gospel. And to say anything, anything less than that is to take what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection and throw it under the bus and say, this is worthless, right? He didn't accomplish anything. If he didn't get gain authority over the whole world, what did he accomplish, right? But that's what the gospel says, is that he was given dominion over the whole world. And this is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. We're going to see how that hopefully works out. Um, and how actually what that is, is a, it's not just, it's not just that this promise was made to Abraham, but that in Abraham, the blessing that was, that Adam was given and the command to go forth and subdue the earth and rule over it, is actually being fulfilled in the Messiah, right? That's what's going on. And, and this is the worldwide scope of what's happened in the Messiah is what we have to keep our eyes on, it really is. So we're going to look, you wanna go ahead and turn in your, in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter four. We're going to be in uh, verses nine through 14. I'm gonna divide it into two parts, nine through 12 first. We're gonna look at that. And then we're going to look at uh, verses 13 and 14 as well and, and spend, I think, probably most of our time there, uh, 13 and 14. Let's, uh, let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the way we're reminded as we open your word of what you have accomplished through Jesus. And we just pray that it would become um, a pressing reality upon our lives that we would that we would 
constantly be filled with the, with the mind of Christ and the mission of Christ to subdue the world, to subdue the world, not through military might, but, but through the word of God, through the good news of what you have done in Christ. And we just pray that uh, that would extend out from our families, but that it would also penetrate our families, that we would, we would all be controlled by that that uh, all-consuming love that you've had for mankind. Father, help us um, as, we, as we seek to live that out. Help us, Father, protect us from the evil one. And, and we just pray that, uh, that you, your glory would shine through and uh, that, that, uh, you would, that you would create a people uh, to uh, proclaim your glories throughout the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today in two parts, 9 through 12, 13 and 14. Broadly speaking, these two sections are about sonship and inheritance. Sonship and inheritance. And uh, when you read it, you won't necessarily pull that out. But uh, track with me as I go, because that, that I think is actually what, what is being what Paul is getting at here. Sonship in the sense that God gives Abraham a son, and in the future, sons. This we've discussed at length, though I haven't quite put it in these terms. I spoke to most, mostly about the family, the generic, not male nor female, which is fine. But in the biblical text, this is sonship. The family that God has given to Abraham. But this is the same as saying, that God has given Abraham sons, including all the ladies. And you too, and uh, we talk, I talked about uh, having everybody sing Father Abraham had many sons, right? So just to make it sink in, but, uh, but this is, this is it's, a, it's a basic biblical truth. Father Abraham had many sons and I am one of them, right? And everyone can sing that who knows the Lord. Secondly, verses 13 and 14, Paul turns seemingly abruptly to inheritance. What is sonship without inheritance? In the biblical story, the sons, especially the firstborn, are heirs. They're all, they're all heirs. Um, any son is an heir. If you're, not a, if you're not an heir, you're not a son. That's the way it goes. We too are heirs. And we will see what I think is very exciting about what it means to be an heir to Father Abraham. Let's read first 9 through 12, and then later we'll come back to 13 and 14. Therefore, he says in verse 9, is this blessedness, that is, is this covenant membership with its benefits, this reckoning as righteousness of the faith of Abraham that we talked about last week, and the resultant state of blessedness, is this blessedness upon the circumcision or upon the uncircumcision. For it says, the faith was reckoned to him as righteousness, as covenant membership we discussed last week. Now this, this, this raises an interesting question for Paul. And he says this, essentially, can the uncircumcision, that is Gentiles, can they enjoy the covenant blessings in light of circumcision that was given as a sign of the covenant. In other words, can the Gentiles who are not circumcised in the flesh 
can they enjoy the blessings that come by the covenant in their uncircumcision? To answer this, Paul says, how is it reckoned? What does he mean? How is it reckoned? How was the covenant made with Abraham? In what state was he when it was made? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, he says, but in uncircumcision. God made the covenant with Abraham while he was yet uncircumcised. And a sign, verse 11, and a sign of circumcision he received, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had in uncircumcision. Just a little word there. I, I meant to say something about this later on in my notes, and I forgot to put it in. He says here, a seal of the, of the righteousness of the faith. In Genesis, the, the same phrase is used, except instead of saying that his circumcision was a seal of the righteousness of faith, he says it was a seal of the covenant. And this, this backs up my contention that what righteousness is, essentially, is is covenant membership, right? So when he says, when, when they say in Genesis 17 that circumcision is a seal of the covenant, Paul then turns around and says, this is a seal of the righteousness. Righteousness and covenant membership are the same thing. He says, and as a, and a sign of the covenant, he received the seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had in uncircumcision, so that he would be the father of all those who believe through uncircumcision, that righteousness, that is covenant membership, might be reckoned to them also. And the father of circumcision, to the ones not out of circumcision alone, but also to the ones who walk in the footsteps of the in, in uncircumcision faithfulness of our father. I, I phrase that because that's how, that's how Paul puts it. He says, so that he might be the father of the circumcision, Abraham, to the ones not of the circumcision alone, but also to the ones who walk in the footsteps of the in uncircumcision faithfulness of our father Abraham. In other words, Abraham was faithful when he was in circumcision, when he was uncircumcised, right? And you too, we too, can walk in that faithfulness, even though we're not circumcised. That's, that's primarily his point. Now, I spoke to you last week at length about the terminology that Paul employs to talk about the important doctrine that we call justification. We saw, I hope, that what the Bible means by justification is not synonymous with salvation. It's a very important point because we tend, in the evangelical world, we tend to kind of pull all these terms together and just treat them as if they're synonymous. They're not synonymous. Rather, justification is covenant language. God's action of putting us in the covenant of giving us membership in the covenant that comes with privileges, benefits, and responsibilities. And this is summed up in one word, justification. God's action in putting us in the covenant, of giving us membership in the covenant that comes with privileges, benefits, and responsibilities. We saw that in, in Romans 4, 1 through 5, uh, that it is essentially an exegesis of Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is about the covenant. And the covenant with Abraham was a covenant that was intended through a long and winding path to fully and finally deal with the problem of Adam's sin. The problem that had to be dealt with so that God's world could be put right. And this is a very important point. This is not just about you and me and, and about Abraham even. This is about God putting the whole world to rights. 
So God calls Abraham. God calls Abraham. He makes a promise to him. He promises to give him a family, a seed, descendants. He promises, essentially, to make the ungodly godly. God can justify the ungodly, he says. Verse 5, that is speaking of the Gentiles, not of Abraham himself, but of the Gentiles. So they, too, could come to enjoy the blessedness of covenant membership with Abraham and those who believe like Abraham. God calls Abraham, makes a promise to him, promises him descendants. And he promises that in this family, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And the clear implication is that somehow this blessedness will come about through God's covenant actions with Abraham and his descendants. And it is this very thing that Abraham believes that God is indeed willing and able to follow through with his promise to call a family from among the Jews and the Gentiles, a worldwide family. And though he has no son, as we saw last week, no heir, and that's important language, he believes that God is able to accomplish his word. Now, this might be the end of the discussion, were it not for the issue of circumcision. But why should, should circumcision even be an issue? For Paul, it is clear that it should not be an issue. But let's think in terms of a first century Jew. It is very problematic for a faithful Jew because, quite simply, circumcision had come to equal covenant membership. In the mind of any Jew, even today, you are not in the covenant if you are not circumcised. And that's just the fact. Not because they would say, well, because we're circumcised, we've somehow earned God's favor and worked our way to the resurrection or heaven or whatever. No, that's not what they would say. No, God has designated circumcision as the sign of the covenant. And if you don't get it, you do not possess that identity marker. That is the identity marker of those who are in the covenant. Among other things, dietary laws, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the festivals, these are all... These are all identity markers to say, in the present, how can we tell who's in the covenant? And they would say, are you circumcised? Do you keep the Sabbath? It's not, they're not saying you can earn your way to God's favor. It's not what's going on. They're saying, this is how we know that we're in the covenant. It is an identity marker. And quite logically, if someone were not circumcised, it would be plainly obvious to them that he is not in the covenant. Thus, when Peter and Paul and the other followers of Jesus begin to announce, after Peter receives a vision, after everybody else, or Paul um, starts examining the implications of, of Jesus' death and resurrection after his, um, after his vision on the road to Damascus, when they start announcing that circumcision in the flesh is not a requirement for covenant membership, they begin to experience persecution. Since actually the circumcision in the flesh is what is the visible sign of someone being in the covenant is. Now, what the, what the, the apostles and, and Jesus himself knew was that circumcision was a sign, not simply that you were in the covenant, although that is true. It was a sign that pointed ahead. It was to reflect from its institution a circumcised heart. That was the symbolism. 
they had thought was just a symbol that indicates we're in the covenant. But no, it's more than that. It's a symbol that says, this is what it looks like. Those who get circumcised in the flesh are those who have a circumcised heart. That's what it was intended to signify. The Jews on the whole rejected this, establishing, Paul says, a righteousness of their own, a covenant membership of their own. Paul says, not one based on the faithfulness of the Messiah. For not knowing, he says in, in 10.3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, Paul says, talking about Israel according to the flesh. That Gentiles, he says, who did not pursue righteousness, covenant membership, read there, they attained covenant membership, even the covenant membership, which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law that brings covenant membership, did not arrive at that law. Seeking covenant membership by the law, they fell short. They did not arrive at it because they did not seek it by faith, by the faithfulness of the Messiah. For this is the problem with saying that circumcision is the definitive sign of membership. The Gentiles can't come in unless they are. And the blessing of Abraham remains locked up among Israel as we saw in Galatians 3. In 4, 9, chapter 4, verse 9, Romans 4, 9, Paul quotes again Genesis 15, 6, because he hasn't finished with the implications of this discovery, verse 1, that Abraham found. This is why. Here's why he keeps pounding this. One might argue from the same text that in order to follow faithfully Abraham's faith, one should then go on to get circumcised, right? You could read it that way. You could say, well, Abraham believed, yes, he would believe and got put into the covenant, right? But he also went and got circumcised after that. That's how you're faithful to the covenant. So you could argue it from the same text. Genesis 15 is the covenant. Genesis 17 is the sign of the covenant. Circumcision, you should get it. Shouldn't everyone get the sign of the covenant if they are to be in the covenant? So this is the logic of those who are, who are opposing what Paul is saying. But Paul comes at it differently. And I, I think what he's doing is he's reading the, the, the larger scope, the arc of the story. Paul comes to it differently based on two things. One, he says that um, the second one is actually the most conclusive. He says, first of all, the order within the story is this. God puts him in the covenant in uncircumcision. And then secondly, God gives him circumcision as a sign of the covenant, a sign of someone who's already in it. But as I've said, you could argue that backwards. You could say, yeah, of course, that's true, which means you should get the sign of the covenant in your flesh, right? But this one is determinative. And the covenant must result, and this is the hangout for the, for the Jews, it must result in the incorporation of the Gentiles in their uncircumcision, if it is to be full, truly fulfilled. It's this latter point that proves decisive in Paul's argumentation. The logic is this. If the covenant was for the whole world, ultimately, to redeem all of humanity and thereby deal with the sin of Adam, in whom all mankind had lived, and Abraham, the one through whom God would redeem the world, had faith reckoned to him as righteousness before he was circumcised, then circumcision didn't play a part in his reckoning as righteous. Covenant membership, he then argues, must be on the basis of faith 
faith in the covenant promises alone. That is, God didn't take into account his uncircumcision when he reckoned him as in the covenant. Just a brief aside, it is this element that is often left out because it is somewhat irrelevant to us in the Western world. It's this element that's often left out of the classical formulation of justification by faith. This is left out, that Abraham believed God for a descendant, for a family, and God made a covenant with him. And this blessedness of forgiveness, that's the benefit of this being in the covenant, is available for the whole world. We often tell the story of forgiveness without the story. It's not a story anymore, right? It's just believe and be forgiven. But if you don't tell the story, you miss out on the grander story of God's faithfulness to keep the covenant with Abraham. The results of this covenant membership is blessedness, she says in 6 and 7. The state of being in covenant in which one's transgressions and lawless deeds are forgiven. That's what we tend to focus on. What has happened in the classical formulation of justification by faith is that the covenant has been screened out and the status of forgiven and the act of forgiveness has become the most prominent. And I'm not saying it's unimportant. It is a major benefit of justification. But it is, and it is, I shouldn't say but, it is God's putting people right in anticipation of the future. The forgiveness of sins enables someone who is justified to get, to become a new creation, essentially, right? So that the whole creation can be put right. This is exactly, this is the point. So forgiveness is huge, but it is a benefit of covenant membership, and we have to tell the whole story. We must keep our eyes on the, on the whole argument or we'll lose sight of half the story. We will make forgiveness the beginning and end of everything while neglecting the broader love of God in his earnest, laborious, centuries-long work to save humanity. We will disconnect the effect of God's work from its cause, and only a shallow hole of God's grand story will be left. And if we're not careful, we will supplant the true gospel with a pagan one as we unhitch, as some people want to do, from the Old Testament. The gospel is not simply that God loves you personally and individually, and then he sent Jesus to die for you and wants to give you purpose and forgiveness, etc. These are all true, but that's a truncated version that we must tell within the story according to the scriptures. So when Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 says, this is what we receive and this is what we delivered from uh, to you, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, and he was raised according to the scriptures. That according to the scriptures is what he unpacks throughout Romans, throughout Galatians. And that's the story we have to, we have to continue to tell. It's one we have to learn. We've got to learn the story and be able to tell it. That is the gospel. And it is in this story that we find our purpose in bearing witness to what God has done. I used to read the stories of, of Israel in places like Psalm 78 and think, why rehearse all this history? Why does all this history matter? I mean, it's like, yeah, they're telling the story of Israel. What matters really is that 
you know, God's going to save your soul. Call on him. He'll forgive your sins, etc. Uh, isn't this just history, the physical side of things? Well, yes and no. But God is, God is not just saving our souls. He is dealing with whole lives and whole peoples in the everyday. But most importantly, these stories are rehearsals about the faithfulness of God, his righteousness in a word, to sustain his word to the fathers and to call upon him in Psalm 78. They're calling upon him not to forget his word, but to revive it, as Habakkuk says at the end of his uh, end of his book, revive your work. You said you're going to do this. You're the creator of the world. This is your world. Revive this work and do it. This is, this is what you said. And these are to remind him of his faithfulness and also to remind the congregation that God is faithful to his word. That includes the faithfulness, uh, the faithful among Israel with a view to the incorporation of the nations into the people of God. If you look at, read the Psalms, if you read the Psalms, you will see that as much as Israel seems so concerned about her own self, the psalmist is really concerned about the psalmist and Israel. It's always with a view to the nations. That's, what, that's what's important to God, because God has made promises for the whole world. That's, that's really the point of it all. These are not simply history rehearsals. Now, let's look at verses 13 and 14, and uh, let's look at something quite remarkable. It's very easy to pass over it uh, if you don't read carefully. But, um, but it's quite astounding if when, you, when you see it, and then you'll think, how in the world did Paul get that? So verse 13, for not through the law was the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world. Did you catch that? But through the righteousness or the covenant membership that comes by faith. For if the ones out of the law are heirs, Faith has been made of no effect, and the promise annulled. Here in verse thir verses 13 and 14, specifically in 13, Paul says that God made a promise to Abraham, and that this promise was that he would inherit the world, the cosmos. In Greek, it's cosmos. No. What, when did God promise that Abraham was going to inherit the world? Can you find chapter and verse telling me that? Where does Paul get that? What we will notice, and I want to say this very clearly, because there is a theology out there that uh, is, does not take this into account. What we will notice is that Paul did not say that Abraham would inherit the land of Canaan, which is what you would expect him to say. Because on the surface, that is essentially what the book of Genesis says that Abraham and his descendants will inherit the land of Canaan. Genesis 15, 18, right after the giving of the covenant, to your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, all the Ike brothers. And in 17, 8, also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There it is, clear as day. 
Where are you getting your stuff, Paul? And this promise is continually repeated to Abraham's descendants, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Israel as a whole. So how can Paul say that the promise of Abraham would, uh, that the promise of Abraham meant that he would be the heir, receive as his inheritance the whole cosmos, the whole world? Right? Hang with me, because this is, he's reading the broader arc of scripture. He's not reading these individual promises by themselves. He's reading it, the grand arc of scripture. And I'll show you how I think he's doing that. It goes back to what we were saying earlier about the nature of the blessing itself, which was to go out from Abraham and his descendants and was to encompass all the nations. Thus, the question becomes, if Abraham and his descendants only inherit the land of Canaan, how then can the rest of the world come into the covenant with God? Now, to get a glimpse at the thinking of Paul, we have to read the Bible the way Paul would have read it. And I know that sounds very arrogant. Uh, so I'll see if I can do what I think he's doing. I'm probably off a little bit, but I think this is how he's reading the scriptures. Paul would not have read the promise to Abraham isolated from what had gone before it, as if chapter 12 through 22 of Genesis existed apart from chapters 1 through 11. No, Paul would have understood the Abraham story in light of the Adam story. And as I have mentioned, he would have understood the Abraham story to be the very answer to the Adam story. What Adam had brought upon the whole world would be reversed in some way by Abraham and the covenant that God makes with him. Now, if we go back to Genesis 2, <clears throat> chapter 2, of Genesis to the to the fashioning of Adam, we will see that this story is not just about, may not even be about it at all, the creation of Adam per se, as most people have read it. That takes place in 1, 26 and 27. That, there's a different verb there, so I won't get into all of this, but, uh, but bara is used in Genesis 1. Yatsar to fashion is the verb that's used of Adam in Genesis 2, which is not created. It's a fashioning, and something's going on there that is not exactly like what has happened in chapter 1. It's about the fashioning of Adam, this is my argument, into a priestly king. There's lots of research to back this up. I'm not, and I'll be glad to share all of this with you if you want to talk about it. I'd love to. What, what God is doing in chapter 2 with Adam is fashioning him into a priestly king. He's already said that all humanity, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, are to rule as kings. He blessed them and he said he made them in the image of God. And he said, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and subdue it. Right? Take dominion over it and rule over it. He's constantly saying this, this is kingly language, right? All of humanity is supposed to engage in this human endeavor of ruling over God's creation. Chapter 2, we have something slightly different. Here, one man is being formed into something that it seems the other, uh, other bit of humanity is not formed into, and that is a priestly king. Adam, I contend, is the first king to rule God's world. I'm going to give you a bit of... A bit of support for that. There's a lot of it, uh, but um, this is this is what I contend: that 
Adam is the first king to rule God's world. And though we don't have time to explore it in depth, we read along these lines and, in and read this then in relation to the call of Abraham and the promises God made to him, things will begin to make more sense about the worldwide scope of the Messiah's mission and of our mission in him. <clears throat> these things will be odd for the first time you hear them. I promise they will be. Don't take me out and stone me about it. Think about them. Because the whole, the world of the Bible will, I promise, open up when you, when you see it in this life. We know that in 1, 26 through 28, that God created mankind in his image. But in 2, 7, the Lord God formed man dust from the ground. It, it says he formed him not from the dust of the ground, but dust of the ground, which I take to mean mortal. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man, the man, Adam, became a living being. The Lord then plants a garden, and he puts the man in there whom he had formed. And then he provides all that he needs to dwell in the garden. And then in verses 10 through 14, the author describes, quite oddly, if you read that story, read chapter 2, and you get to verse 10, you get this, this river that flows out of Eden. He says, uh, he describes four boundaries using four river heads. And I take this to mean the land over which he is going to rule. And if we map that on to a later rule of the later land that Solomon rules over, it's actually the same boundaries, virtually the same boundaries that, that he's going to rule over later. The river begins in Eden, verses 10, Adam, and, and Adam's base of operations essentially. But the four rivers that come out of it are not the boundaries of Eden. They can't be. They come out of Eden, it says, and they water the land. Eden sustains them. One, it says, is Pishon. It goes around the land of Havilah. It's probably around Saudi Arabia. The second is Gihon. It goes all the way around the land of Cush. Cush in the Bible is Ethiopia, Egypt. The third is the Tigris up near Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. So one river coming out of Eden goes in multiple directions and gives water to this whole region. Now, what is the meaning of such a description in Genesis 2 of a man put into a garden and then a description of four rivers that come from that garden? After the description of the rivers, there's a slight repeti repetition in verse 15. Of verse 8. In verse 8, it says that God put man in the garden. In verse 15, it says um, God doesn't just put him there, though the translations actually say that. It's a different word. And it means God caused him to rest in the garden. And then he gives him a mission, a vocation to keep and to serve. Now, the more we look at this terminology, the more we'll see that rest within the Pentateuch is related to kingship and ruling in the land with your enemies subdued. And this is precisely what the author of Genesis 2, I think, is saying about Adam. Although there are no enemies yet, but use your imagination and think about what's coming in chapter 3. An enemy is coming. 
And what's going to happen in chapter three? His kingship is going to be tested and he's going to fail the test. God has installed a king and he has given him rest roundabout from all of his future enemies, causing him to dwell in the garden, which is his base of operations. And he's given him dominion as he has given all of mankind dominion. So in a special way, he gives it to Adam as the representative king. This dominion is dominion over a land, an inheritance, if you will. So bear with me there. Think about, think about what we've been saying about Abraham inheriting the world. He does this. He does this through the promise made to Adam that he is going to subdue the world. Adam was made into a king as son of God and given a land to rule over. This may be hard to swallow, but there are remarkable resemblances between Adam and Solomon, both of whom are kings. The boundaries closely resemble the boundaries of the land that David bequeathed to Solomon, over which him, he himself was to rule in 1 Kings 4, 20 through, 4, 20 through 24. And there too, Solomon is given peace roundabout from all his enemies. 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 4. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. There's neither Satan, there's neither Satan, which means adversary, nor misfortune. And I think intentionally with a, with a glance back to Genesis, Genesis 3, David has given to him a, a land to rule over where all of the enemies round about have been subjected. This is the picture we also see with Adam. Solomon is given the ability to discern with God's wisdom, good and evil, it says, chapter 3. He is given wisdom about trees, of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. Solomon, the famous king of Israel, to whom all the kings and queens of the nations would come to hear his wisdom, is portrayed as a new Adam. And he is reigning over Israel's inheritance, the land with a view to God eventually, through his promise, expanding the rule over the world through his Davidic king, 2 Samuel 7. Unfortunately, Solomon also fails, as Adam the first king had, and not coincidentally, through his wives. Look in 1 Kings chapter 11. Through his wives. Who does, through whom does Adam fall? Through his wife. There's, I mean, there's a parallel. It's crystal clear. Once you start reading First Kings one through eleven, you'll say he is being Solomon is being portrayed as a as a new king in the mold of Adam. Now, how in the world does this relate to what we've been talking about this morning about Abraham, Abraham inheriting the world? Here is how it works. I think Adam, as the representative king, was given rule over all the world. And his base of operations was the garden, bounded by the four rivers that resemble an expanded land over which he is to exercise dominion. Adam, of course, and also Israel, if you think about what happened after, after Solomon's reign, the land is divided. He no longer had, um, in fact, it says God raises up a Satan. He raises up an adversary against Solomon or against his, his sons and splits the kingdom. He, give, he splits the king exactly what happens in a figurative way with Adam. 
Adam as representative king was given rule over all the world, bounded by the four rivers that resemble an expanded land over which he is to exercise dominion. Adam lost his dominion, his glory, which is another way of talking about one's dominion. He lost his dominion as the representative king who summed up all of humanity. And he was cast out from the garden to live in exile from the land he was supposed to rule. But were he to have obeyed, he would have expanded his dominion as he was told to do in 126 and 27 over all the earth and over all mankind as one who rules under the command and wisdom of God, exactly how Israel's kings were to reign later. Now here's how we connect the dots. If Abraham is the answer to Adam and Adam lost his worldwide dominion through sin, Adam, Abraham is going to be the way through whom God restores that dominion. We should expect recurrence and expansion in the Abraham story if he is indeed the answer to Adam. And that's exactly what we see. Abraham is called from, from without the land, from Ur of the Chaldeans, to go to the land that God will give him authority over, dominion over, an inheritance. As a son of Adam, he also is royal, as is Sarah. Genesis 17, 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, he says, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. 17:16. That was to Abraham. I will bless her, this is about Sarah, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. What kind of a person does a king come from? Do kings come from peasants? They come from kings, right? And queens. Abraham and Sarah are the new kings and queens from which this ruling Messiah is going to come. God makes promises to him that not only will he rule over the land, but he will inherit the land. He will be the father of many nations and his descendants will possess the gate of their enemies. 22:17. Now we could say that all these references to dominion over the land are merely localized references to Abraham and his descendants possessing the land of Israel the land of Canaan, and nothing more. We could say that, but I don't think we can in light of the rest of the scriptures. This is what I contend. These references to dominion of the land for both Adam and Abraham, if you think about, does Abraham, in the story, I'm talking in the story, does Abraham ever possess the land? What about Isaac? Does he ever possess the land? What about Jacob? No, not really. What about Israel? For a brief moment under Solomon, just for a brief moment, then it goes, it's gone. Just the way you would expect it to do if Solomon is in Adam. If he's a second Adam, well, or Adam 1.2, you might say, then you, this is what you would expect of him. He loses it as well. We could say that these are just localized references to Abraham and his descendants possessing the land of Israel. That's not the case. They are, they are, these references to dominion of the, over the land for both Adam and Abraham, along with Abraham's descendants, are to be understood as signposts 
that point to an expanding land over which Abraham's descendants and Israel's Davidic king are to rule. In other words, even within Genesis itself and the Pentateuch as a whole, the possession of the land as an inheritance is to be seen as a sign, a figure for the future possession of the whole earth by Abraham's descendants through their messianic king, the true Adam 2.0. And in fact, that's what we see over and over again within the Pentateuch and in the rest of the Bible. In Genesis 49, 8 through 10, Judah will receive the scepter. The scepter is what kings possess, right? And a, he will be a king, a king and a lawgiver will come from him. One to whom it says belongs the dominion. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the nations. There we have it. An expanded land, the whole earth. All the nations will be ruled by this king. Numbers 24, 8 through 10, God will bring his king, who, who seems to be synonymous with Israel in, in Numbers 24, out of Egypt, and he will consume the nations, his enemies. There he is, ruling the nations, this king that comes from Israel. To the anointed king in Psalm 2, 8, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Psalm 1843, you have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nation, as the nations, plural, God's king as head over all the nations. A people whom I have not known serves me. Psalm 22, 27 and 28, all the, all the ends of the earth will remember and return to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 4610, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 47.3, he subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. Psalm 47.8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Now, let me try to summarize and wrap things up. In Romans 4.13, Paul shockingly says that Abraham was promised the world as his inheritance. This seems striking because on the surface, it seems to be, it seems <clears throat> that, all, that all Abraham was promised was a bit of land over in the Middle East. But this won't work. Since Abraham himself is to be a blessing to all the nations and his descendants are to possess the gate of their enemies, somehow... And God's king and people are in, in multiple places promised dominion over all the nations and their kings. See also Daniel 7, where both the Son of Man and the people of the saints of the Most High are given worldwide dominion. In the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the possession of the land, I contend, was a pointer to a future time when Abraham and his descendants would possess the whole world. This has come and is coming to fulfillment in Jesus, the Davidic Messiah. Worldwide dominion over the earth has been given to Jesus, the Messianic Davidic King. And through him, we have been given the renewed earth with believing Abraham as our inheritance. God's people in Christ will be glorified to rule in the resurrection and have already been to some extent raised up and glorified ahead of the resurrection. 
This is precisely what justification by faith is all about. This is the goal of justification by faith. God has called a people and put them into covenant with himself that in the ages to come, he might rule a renewed earth through that people. He is putting us right now, putting us to rights by the spirit, the first fruits that we might enter the land. We'll see in chapter eight, the land of the resurrection and that we might rule therein. The, that land is the renewed earth. In essence, the land promised to Abraham and his descendants was a signpost to the age to come. Where the earth that was subjected to the curse, he'll say in chapter 8, might be renewed through the renewed mankind, through the work of the spirit that now groans within us. An expanded land as an inheritance for an expanded family. If you haven't felt the implications of this yet, here are some of them. You and I, through Jesus, the Messianic King, will inherit, along with Abraham, dominion over the whole world. Who does Jesus say will inherit the earth? The meek. Right? That's what he says. So we're not, this is not a, an invitation to go out and get your guns and start shooting. The meek will inherit the earth through the gospel. The inheritance of the earth is not through the law, Paul says, not circumcision, or by being Jewish, or any of that, but through Jesus, the Messiah, and by no other way. Dispensationalist theology is wrong about Israel and the land. The grand experiment that began in 1948 in Israel, the country, though within God's will, is not somehow the gathering of his people. Don't shoot, but it's not. God's people are gathered in the Messiah. And God's people consist of those who are in Christ, nothing more and nothing less. And the land over which Jesus has dominion is not a little strip of land over in the Middle East, but the whole globe, the cosmos. All authority, he says, in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. This is the means by which God, through his peoples, subdues the nations. Finally, what we look forward to, and which is hardly even imaginable, is a renewed earth wherein dwells righteousness. Not some obscure, obscure ethereal existence in the clouds, but a real world that is so fruitful that it dwarfs the fruitfulness of this present world at its most fruitful time. A world that can only be imagined by the multiplication of the fruitfulness of this present world, right? Take the fruitfulness of this present world and multiply it infinitely, and you've got your renewed heaven and earth, right? That's, that's what we look forward to. And I'll conclude with this, and this is taken, this is a combination. It's basically the, the, the quote or the elaboration on what Isaiah says in Isaiah 65, 17. Paul says, I has not seen, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, says the Lord, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. That's what it's about. That's what our hope is about in the Messiah. It is, it is a renewed heavens and a renewed earth wherein dwells righteousness.